0: We'll hear argument next to number 97.731, United States versus Beggarly. Mr. Wilson.
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, in 1982, the United States and about 200 other parties settled complex land litigation by agreeing that the title to the disputed lands would be quieted in the United States and that the defendants would receive substantial sums which they stipulated in the consent judgment were fair and just compensation for their claims. Over a decade later, the respondents sought to nullify that settlement agreement. They contended that public documents in the National Archives showed that the disputed lands on Horn Island had been granted to a private claimant by the Spanish colonial authorities in 1781. The district court dismissed their challenge to the consent judgment as untimely and also stated that there was little evidence of fraud or mistake to support their challenge on the merits. But the Court of Appeals agreed with the respondent that the consent judgment should be set aside, and it also held that the Spanish grant was valid, and it awarded title in the disputed lands to the respondent. The Court of Appeals' decision contravenes important values of finality, repose, and stability in the law, which are at their apex in litigation over titles to land. And the lower court's errors also have broad significance for the stability of title to both public and private lands. First, the Court of Appeals disregarded basic principles of finality of judgments and sovereign immunity when it allowed this case to go forward.
2: Incidentally, and, and, and I want you to keep on this vein so far as I'm concerned, but do you have to, prev- in order to prevail, do you have to uh, convince us both uh, of the sovereign immunity point and of the statute of limitations point? The, of the the, well,
1: um, they both, there are two, I have to turn to the statute of the QTA, the Quiet Title Act for a minute. Um, if we win on the sovereign immunity ground, then I think that the, the Quiet Title Action can't really go anywhere because we would indisputably have title to the to the lands. Um, that is, uh, there may be a separate well, question. Unless they want to set aside the settlement yeah. or something. Like that. Uh, I don't, my, uh, our position is that the Quiet Title Act would not allow a, would not allow the settlement to be set aside. I mean if they let's assume that they could get into district court under the quiet title act because the court of appeal said yes the statute of limitations was told. immediately we would move for summary judgment or to move to dismiss a claim because uh it's the judgment held as a matter of uh, race judicata definitively gave us title and in the quiet title act in fact there's a provision that says that the plaintiff has to set up with particularity the nature of his right, title, or interest in the disputed lands as well as the United States. And it would be, I think, a complete defense to any action under the Quiet Title Act that the, the judgment in the prior action had conclusively found, uh, determined the title, uh, where in the United States. Now, that is, it may be a separate question from the, the statute of limitations question under the Quiet Title Act as to...
3: The claim preclusion argument was the one, as I was reading your brief, and I said, what is this about equitable tolling statute of limitations? Why didn't the government
1: just say claim preclusion? We already had a quiet quiet title action. Well, I I mean, we, of course, it has to be understood in the district court, um, the respondents relied on the quiet title action, on the quiet title act. Not really, they didn't really want title to the land back. They didn't really want their land back. They wanted money. And there's various pleadings in the district court in which they say that. What they said, Your Honor, was that the Quiet Title Act allowed the District Court to award them damages because uh, there, is a, there is a provision that says if it's found, that it's their land but under the Quiet Title Act, but um, we elect to keep it anyway, then we can elect to award them uh, compensation. Our argument in the District Court was that the District Court could not use the Quiet Title Act in, on that basis because it, it was essentially a taking claim which had to be brought in the Court of Federal Claims. Now we went up Even the, even
4: apart from that, why don't you, as to damages, also have raised Judicata to, to Plead, you say they quieted. There was a judgment. It was so many dollars, and that dollar judgment is it. It has been
1: satisfied. I, 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 have, issue, to, I have to for emphasize. I have to emphasize that the whole, the reason the Quiet Title Act is in the case only because essentially of a surprise that the Court of Appeals. No, uh, oh, but what's the answer to my question? I think that, well, I think that if we win on the first question presented, then we have those we have those defenses to plead but if we lose on the first but question, do you do you question, say you
4: have that defense to plead not only with respect uh to the party in whom title uh has been adjudicated but that you also have that defense to plead with respect to the amount of money uh that uh could possibly be a liability from the government uh to to the response?
1: well I, again i think that I, I you know we are here on our petition sort of taking the case as the court of appeals No, but yes or no what's the what's the answer I, 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 I may not be understanding your question exactly, but... Justice
4: we- as Ginsburg asked you why uh, why preclusion isn't your answer if you get to quiet title. I understood you to say, well, the issue really under the Quiet Title Act is not title. The issue is damages. And my question is, why isn't that also a matter of preclusion because the damages were the subject of a prior settlement that was
1: reduced to judgment? Right. And and my I guess what I, I have to say is, it's an answer that we can give only if that judgment mm-hmm. remains closed. Well, but, but the, the judgment, judgment
4: remains closed, I presume, because you have won on the first issue. Right. If
1: we win on the first issue, then I think we have a substantive defence. But on the on not anymore. You not... waived it below. I mean, uh, well, no, I, I don't raise have... buticata can be waived. I don't. I have to say I don't think we waived it. I mean, it wasn't really presented in a way which we were called upon to address it in the district court. I mean, the 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 respondents did not even amend their cause of act, amend their complaint in order to raise a claim under the Quiet Title Act until after they filed for summary judgment. And the district court dismissed it as untimely, uh, which should be reviewed in the Court of Appeals, I would think, under an abuse of discretion standard. So we strongly feel that we had no call to even address these matters. It was only when the Court of Appeals, even while excusing the respondents for their 12-year delay in bringing their suit, uh, rushed to the you know, ultimate merits of the case... Reopened the judgment, concluded that everything that the land claim was valid, and awarded title to the respondents. That uh, we had to face the issue about whether the Quiet Title Act uh, could be a basis for uh, for awarding the title into, into the respondents' land. I, I think that uh, that does focus, uh, return me to my point about why the Court of Appeals' decisions, why its rulings are so important. First, I mean, in terms of finality of judgments and sovereign immunity. The Court of Appeals essentially redetermined land title issues in a, in a litigation against the United States that was a collateral attack on a final judgment where there was no waiver of sovereign immunity uh, that would permit such a case to go forward. Uh, second, when the Court of Appeals, on the, on the issue of whether there is tolling of the statute of limitations under the Quiet Title Act, uh, when the Court uh, held that it should be tolled, I think it, it disregarded two very important policies about statute of limitations, both generally in the law and especially with regard to land, litiga- land title litigation. Uh, first, uh, protecting parties against being forced to come into court to defend against stale, very stale land claims, and also to encourage plaintiffs who claim an interest in land uh, to conduct prompt and thorough research on their claims. Uh, I, I've spoken uh, a uh, third about uh, the Court of Appeals kind of uh, prematurely uh, judging the merits of the, of the case, uh, that we submit was, uh, was error because it was, first of all because it was outside of the scope of the uh, Court of Appeals. Is,
0: is it your position the Court of Appeals was wrong in saying that the independent action was just really a continuation of the earlier action?
1: Yes, it is. I think that's, that is essentially our, our primary you, submission.
0: Yes, the, certainly an independent action is possible under the rules, isn't it? Because it says that...
1: Right. I mean, th- I would say this. The rules, the, the rules leave any independent action where they found it that is they do not the rules of course do not abridge or modify or enlarge any substantive right and all that when rule 60b says there may be an independent action it doesn't purport to create one or establish what the substantive law would be for for proceeding under one all it says is if under some other body of substantive law there is available to a party an independent action that would allow uh, that party relief from a final judgment the rules leave that where you know leave that there what the rules themselves do however is they eliminated a kind of a borderland of ancillary forms of action that were neither re- that were neither really inside nor exactly outside the original litigation that uh, that were available in the 19th century before law and equity uh, were united in the federal rules in 1938 and uh, as we've explained there was considerable confusion between 1938 and 1946 as to whether still one could go outside the, the mechanism that the rules had set up, which was to say to file a motion for relief, uh, from judgment. And the reason why I think there was confusion was that as it was originally enacted, Rule 60B did not specifically say that a party could get relief from a final judgment because of fraud. And I think there was some, uh, some speculation that it, it couldn't have been that the rules had intended to cut off that that avenue from release what the what right the,
2: on that point supposing I know it's not this case but supposing there had been allegations of fraud here would there need to be an independent uh, 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 jurisdictional basis for attacking the judgment on fraud grounds uh,
1: yes because they're outside the uh, they're outside the time the time limit of rule 60b which is one year uh, for for uh, um, seeking relief from a gi- uh, final judgment based on fraud whether whether intrinsic or extrinsic, as the rule specifically says. But
2: the, that, the, the sentence describing independent actions includes fraud as a ground of relief.
1: Well, there may be uh, there may be some substantive law. For example, between private parties is one that would come to mind, where a, one party could seek to to could bring a lawsuit in federal district court against another and get relief from a final judgment based on fraud. But when such an independent action is filed, uh, in federal district court, it is just like any new lawsuit. You need substantive law. You need subject matter jurisdiction. You need, and when the lawsuit is against the United States, and what is
2: your authority for that?
1: What is our authority for that? Well, I think our, our I mean, we're we're drawing our reasoning from the court's recent decision in Cocona. Yeah, but there's yeah. no, but
2: there's no pre-Kokona yeah. law that's established to that.
1: Well, I, I mean, Coconin, we recognize of course, that it wasn't
2: really directed at this problem.
1: I, I I acknowledge that. I mean, we 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 I guess our we recognize that this has been an unsettled issue for for a while. I mean, um,
3: How about that it would undercut 60B entirely if you could just avoid I think 60B right. and say, here, we the, because 60B, you don't have to establish any independent
1: jurisdictional basis. Right. It is, it is truly ancillary jurisdiction. And no, I think it, it would is. be hard to understand why the drafters of the federal rules would have put in a one-year time limit for, for relief from judgment, motions for relief from judgment based on fraud, among other things, and mistake, if it had, were also possible just to file a, a newer, in, a, an independent action without invoking But the then it's also anew. puzzling,
2: why did they use the word fraud in subparagraph 3 or clause 3 and also put it in with regard to independent action if that's just meant to duplicate? Uh, that's I, what's
1: puzzling to me. Right, I think that, well, there is, I mean, I do have to, I do want to say there is a separate concept of fraud upon the court. Right, right. and that, that, that is, Really, really bad fraud. I mean, there's no other way. That's that's what
2: I wanted to do. I wanted to to distinguish this case, which doesn't involve that kind of fraud, but a case that does involve really, really bad fraud upon the court. Right. And in that case, does does there have to be an independent
1: federal basis for? I don't think that case. That case does not really involve an independent action at all. What that case? That that case. It's in the sentence about independent action. No, it says. But you see, it says um, it does not relieve a party. It does not prevent a party. Um, from bringing an independent action or to set aside a judgment for fraud upon the court. Now that, uh, ju- just the ability of a court to sort of purge itself of the effects of fraud perpetrated upon it. And the, the classic example is this court's opinion in Hazel Atlas. Right. That is an inherent authority of the court. It doesn't even require an independent action. In fact, there are cases from this court where a party brought Allegations of fraud to the court as a curia. You
2: know, there's been it, debate right, within the court as right. to the extent of our inherent powers. Right. Some of us are. More... I, 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 I,
1: but I think that this this is a this is a, a um, it doesn't even as I understand the cases on this to to be for a court to purge itself of fraud upon the court it doesn't even really require a new lawsuit. It is it is a ability of one branch of government to protect itself from fraud perpetrated upon it. But it is a unique and very very narrow situation that, that involves egregious misconduct like bribing a juror. Why, it,
5: why do you think that? That is, uh, I, I don't understand the relation of the first parts of the rules to the word independent action. My understanding is there was a classical action in equity called an independent action in equity. And that classical action which existed in the 19th century was a way of going to a court of equity and asking for relief from a judgment. And you could get it. There was a jurisdictional problem. There was no problem. You you went to the same court, and they they let you in in the same court that you had the original action, and that seemed fairly clear from the commentators. I I, I grant you I agree with you. I don't understand the relation to that. On the one hand, you have to say, bring it within a year. That's what they say at the first part of the rules. And then they say, oh, but we're not interfering with an independent action in equity. And, of course, that would gut the year requirement. But but it does. It does gut it. So what are we supposed to do? First of
1: all, let me say, um, although there there were these independent actions in equity they were not they were not allowed to proceed against the sovereign under under cases that we cited in our brief no, all, i
4: i thought the, they i thought they could proceed uh, against whatever party was involved in the first action i thought that well all the, missouri the,
1: what is it pacific missouri railroad, pacific railroad Bur- yeah. you know, it well that be, is I, I would acknowledge that that is the strongest case for the other side but that's that, not To be sure that speaks of citizenship right I'm that's not a case against the sovereign and the cases that we've cited um, on page 20 footnote 13 of our brief, Hill against United States, United States against Macklemore—they all say, "Well, these bills of these things like bills of review, they are really uh, they are really new." To, as far as sovereign immunity is concerned, they are new actions. Well, Mr. You know, I want to I, I well, emphasize that before. I I, I understand right, that, but right, suppose
5: I didn't want to be right, technical about it I right. said that the whole point of these independent actions in equity was to set aside an initial judgment obtained through fraud. So, if the sovereign waived immunity as to the first, they waived it as to the second. And moreover, since an action in equity, forget the, the, the statute of limitations in the, in the statutes, so it's a question of latches or something, right. it's equitable. Right, now, now, I grant you, right. it totally guts the first part, right. but, but well, there then is, it says it in the second sentence. of so the rules, it says it, so, so what am I
1: supposed to do? Well, I think that if looking at those cases, they really, although they are referred to as independent actions in equity, they really are devices that courts of equity were trying to fashion in order to get around the problem that well, a, a, a court of law could not reopen its judgments after, uh, after a few months.
0: Well in Missouri and, Pacific, sorry. the second action was brought as a matter of, mo- in a matter of months after the original decision came down from this court.
1: Wasn't it? Right, and that's, and in Missouri the Pacific there had been a problem because there was no longer di- complete diversity among the parties and the court said, now, said, uh, yes, um, you know the the parties can can go forward. We think that Missouri Pacific is really best understood as a fraud upon the court case. But uh, if not, then it probably is best understood as a, as a bill of review case, where it was a sort of a supplemental bill. It wasn't really, an, it wasn't an independent action in equity like somebody if, would if go I into federal. To do
5: this. What it says is this rule does not limit the power of a court to entertain an independent action. Inequity, right, let's right. say, to relieve a party. So I'm supposed to imagine, I'm back in the days of yesteryear, I'm back in the 19th right. century. I'm supposed to imagine that, and I'm supposed to imagine what would a court have done then in an independent action inequity. But, the, bu- right, but, the, rule, to- but
1: the rule also says, and I think this is very important, writs of quorum nobis, quorum vobis, audita querella, bills of review, and bills in the nature of bills of review are abolished. So I think, first of all, you have to make sure that it isn't anything like those. And in, and in the, the advisory committee notes, it says, you know, we have endeavored to list every single form of ancillary I, form then of... And you're agreeing that, that, with right. me
5: about how to read it. Now tell me I'm now back imagining I am in the 19th century right. bringing an in independent action in equity without quorum nobis, quorum vobis, whatever it
1: is. I'm, I'm and, not sure and, I, and now I'm tell not me I'm not what, sure I, what the court you. would then have held in respect to this independent action, and why? I'm not sure I agree with you that we are back in the 19th century. I think that in, when the court is using the term independent action, it means a new lawsuit. But even if we're back in the 19th century, I mean, what I think we were talking about is if there is subject matter jurisdiction and all of the rest of it, if you can go and bring a new lawsuit, for example, parties with diversity of citizenship who go into federal court to enjoin the effect of a state court judgment, that is, a, that is a classic independent action in equity, but it would need all of the requisites of, uh, of what anybody would need when they were filing a new, a yes, new case Mr. in federal but, Mr. If, if
2: under all those rules, quorum nobis, uh, audit the various common law writs that were available then, if they could have been brought without a, a new basis of federal jurisdiction, you can't uh, argue, I don't, I don't believe, that substituting a category of independent action for all of those limited the court's jurisdiction, because the rules are not intended to change jurisdiction. In other words, if there were jurisdiction, in the, you didn't need new jurisdiction under one of those writs, you don't need it today if this is the substitute for that.
1: And I, I think it's not. I mean, I think the, the point is oh, that, that uh, I mean, maybe I misunderstood your question, but all of those are abolished, and so... But they're replaced by... They're not, I don't think they are replaced by an independent action. What they are replaced, replaced by, by is by Rule 60b. 6. Right. And oh. so the only, I would say that the only way, what, what Rule 60b is intended to make clear is that the only way you can get relief from final judgment Without filing a new lawsuit is to, is to make a motion under the rules and the advisory committee notes say the rules, the practice of the rules are intended to be complete in this regard. I, I'd like to turn, uh, at the, if I may, to Ms. the, uh. Wilson,
3: be, before you do, I, I'd just like to fasten on something extraordinary about this case. You prevailed in the district court. The Fifth Circuit was obviously very, um, Disturbed by this case, very angry, almost one might say, because you got cut off entirely. At the end, you end up from being a total winner being a total loser. So, what is it that is it that the this Spanish grant should have been? Did 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 the Court of Appeals think that it was terribly negligent or maybe even deceptive of the United States not to have come forward earlier with this? Well, I I
1: um obviously it's it's difficult to I mean I agree with you that the Court of Appeals was. You know, there was something that really concerned it about the case, but I I have to say, to the extent that the Court of Appeals might have thought there was, um, you know, some problem that led it to told, thought, think that equitable tolling, for example, was proper, I I have to say I disagree with it. I mean, as as we pointed out in our brief, we did bring the the fact of the Boudreaux grant to the party's attention in the original litigation and said, presuming this to be for a grant for Horn Island, uh, we, you know, we believe that it, it, it was not valid because it was never recognized by Commissioner Crawford, uh, and, and so it, it, it shouldn't be given effect. On the point about powers heirs, which I, I want to get to, um, the, 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 court, n- the respondents did not mention powers heirs either um, in the lower court. And Professor Bod's affidavit, which purports to be a, a comprehensive examination of, of this court's 19th century decisions on the issue. Um, does not address, you know, does not discuss Powers heirs at all, even though it is a it is a controlling decision of federal law that 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 goes to the ultimate issue on the merits in this case, which is whether the United States obtained title to the lands in the Louisiana Purchase or whether they were had already been alienated out of the public domain at that time. Now, uh, uh, two points on how the Court of Appeals disposed on the case. First, as, as I mentioned earlier. Um, we think that the Court of Appeals acted outside the scope of appellate jurisdiction under Section 1291 when it, when it reached the ultimate issue of the case. E- even if we're wrong on the first two questions presented, or, the, or even the first one, and even if the, the judgment of dismissal was incorrect and in the case, you know, that dismissal should have been reversed, uh, it seems to me that what the Court of Appeals should have done was simply remand the case to the District Court, uh, for further proceedings. I mean, the District Court did not really look at any of the merits issues in this case, I and mean, they thought that that had all been decided already. And all the, all the district court really said about the case was, well, I, I don't believe that the respondents have brought forth evidence of fraud or mistake that would justify a setting aside the judgment, even even in the alternative, and on that basis it it denied the respondents' motion for summary judgment. Now, that denial of the motion for summary judgment was not a final decision. It certainly wouldn't have been appealable by itself. And it didn't. It didn't merge. It, the courts often talk about an interlocutory decision merging into the into the final judgment. And I would submit that it did not merge into the final judgment because it did not in any way affect the ultimate way in which the district court disposed of the case, which was to dismiss uh, for lack of jurisdiction. So it, when the court of appeals reversed the dismissal and said the case can go forward, the case was essentially just where it had been in the district court, which was a, a tentative. Uh, conclusion that the, that the case the should not, should there were go to trial. T-
3: there were, okay. it was a 54b judgment entered here, and and yet there was a third claim that seemed to me just another reason for the relief that was wanted. It seemed to me that this was an unfinished case.
1: The well, the district court dismissed the
3: um, one and two, but th- the th- the third the th- 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 there
1: was a one there were it, there was a third that was dismissed for lack of jurisdiction. That's the Tucker. That's the. It, they raised a sort of a, a, an inverse condemnation claim, and the district court said on that, no.
3: But there were three, two left standing, three and four,
1: right? Uh, there's only three. I believe there's only three causes of action in the complaint. Um, one is fraud, one is mutual mistake, and, and the third is inverse condemnation.
3: And you it, said the inverse condemnation was dismissed.
1: Was dismissed for because of yes, it's in the it's in the district court's order in the uh, petition appendix um, at. Well, I'm
3: probably wrong. Uh, Yes, it's a
1: a page 42A and 43A of the petition appendix because uh, the Court said, well, even if there is some claim of taking here, it has to be presented to the Court of Federal Claims.
3: So you're telling me there was only one count left over, only one thing that wasn't...
1: No, everything was decided by the District Court. I I mean, the District Court dismissed all three causes of action, two for untimeliness, and the third because it, it belonged in the Court of Federal Claims. So it's a whole... It's not a 54B judgment. It's a... It's a, it's a, it was a final judgment of dismissal. Um, okay. Turning last to the, to the court of appeals' decision on the merits, uh, um, the, the, respondents, the respondents have argued that this court decided Powers airs on the basis of an incorrect and incomplete understanding of the history of, of West Florida, and, and we disagree with their reading of that history. But we would say that even if the even if the question is doubtful, that the court should nonetheless adhere to its decision. Um, in powers theirs, which was a controlling decision of federal law about the interest that the United States obtained under the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, that decision governs uh both private and and uh, both public and possibly private land claims uh in the area. Um and it would be the, the policy of stare decisis has its strongest force, this court has recognized several times, in in the area of litigation over titles to land. It would be extraordinary for the court to overrule a one hundred and fifty year old precedent governing land titles without a, a truly compelling reason. And uh for that reason uh we think the courts should should adhere to that decision. Um if there are no further questions I'd like to reserve my time for rebuttal.
0: Very well Mr. Wolfson. And Mr. Taylor will hear from you
6: Mr Chief Justice, and may it please the court I would like to begin immediately by stating that uh counsel opposite comment that the Finality of judgments is important to protect litigants from stale claims and to also encourage litigants to do their research before presenting their cases or during the cases is a critical point that uh, uh, is in my favor because the federal government in this instance did not do their research and they misrepresented a critical fact. They misrepresented that the key document that the beggarlies needed to defend their claim in nineteen seventy nine did not exist. And I don't think there's really any question on this record but that that misrepresentation is a cause of the entry of this judgment. It also was the cause of delay, which I'll get into in a little bit But mister
3: Taylor, the the district judge said this was in good faith. Everybody realized that there was this document and that it wasn't found. And the district judge said, I understand that, but he is not using the kind of language that you are. He said there was good faith on the part of the government.
6: Your, your Honor, didn't I did find not... find it. Excuse me. Pardon me, your Honor. I did not intend to insinuate that the government did not act in good faith. You can act in good faith and not get your homework done. You can act in good faith and not do a thorough job. I'm not saying uh, that the government intended... To uh, not find this document, but the fact of the matter is, they did not find it, and they represented that it did not exist, and our people relied upon that representation. Well, maybe you shouldn't in adversary litigation. I, you mean every time your opponent uh, uh, cites
2: a case that uh, uh, incorrectly or, or states a fact uh, incorrectly, uh, and you don't take them up on it, this is a this is a basis for setting aside the judgment? Certainly
6: not, Your Honor. Well, why why is it here, if if there is no knowledgeable fraud on the part of what, the government. What happened here, uh, in my mind, is similar to what happens in discovery in uh, all cases. Uh, after doing initial investigation of their own in various archives, including the National Archives, the uh, Begley's ultimately deposed Mr. Doris Savage, who was the ultimate authority on these records and these grants. Mr. Doris Savage said... That the document did not exist. There was still time to look further, not much, but still some time when he gave that testimony in 1982. The, uh, beggarlies, just like any litigant does, when they take a 30B6 deposition or take the deposition of a managing agent, they're entitled to assume that the testimony that is given on behalf of the other litigant is truthful and until some time, till such time that they acquire evidence, to uh, that to indicates that it's not it's not true, then they don't look in that area anymore. Let's not say it's not that. truthful. It was it was truthful. It was simply not correct. Well, I apologize. For he me. wasn't uh, he wasn't misrepresent. I
2: wasn't intentionally misrepresented. Right. I don't know. I'm I'm rather troubled by that. I'm I'm not I'm not sure. In an adversary system, you you are entitled to the, the, to the, assume that uh, that what your opponent or your opponent's ex- expert witness says is true, and and if it turns out to be false. You somehow have a, a 60B claim or some claim to set it aside for
6: f- fraud? I, 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 I don't find your case as sympathetic as you do. Well, Your Honor, uh, the, the um, um, independent action, according to the uh, uh, basis for that action identified in Banker's mortgage company case, Fifth Circuit case, 1970, specified that mistake or fraud is a sufficient basis for setting aside a judgment. And that has been the generally accepted rule that you do not have to prove fraud; that uh, mistake is sufficient.
5: Well, yeah. is 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 the record that supports you on this? Pages two twenty-two to two twenty-four of the appendix. I mean, you said the government said at your first, you know, at the trial before you settled. You, know, you settled the case. There were no disposals, no private land claim disposals for Petit Bois Island. Is that what you're relying on?
6: Well. You've got the wrong island, Your Honor. Or, and it says, or ship island, or right. foreign island. Uh, uh they, there were a combination of representations, those made during the summary judgment proceedings but, and the sworn testimony of Mr. Doris Savage. In, in the made. record, are, are they
5: cited somewhere? Because I, is, I I want to look and see what it is that the government said that you said was a misrepresentation. Your
6: Honor, we have cited in our brief Mr. Doris Savage's testimony. I don't have that. Yeah, that's what I quoted here. That's 222.24 of the record. Uh, all right, sir. All right if and, that's If that's Doris Savage's testimony, yes, it is. it's his, that representation that they did rely upon.
5: Fine. What that seems to do is the pages before that, what Doris Savage says is he, he describes his search. So a person reading that would think, well, he's reached the conclusion on the basis of the search he's just described. So where's the misrepresentation?
6: Well, the misrepresentation is that uh, there and in the briefs, the government indicated the grant didn't exist when, in fact, it did. Exist. Yeah,
5: but a person who says, I've looked here, there, and the other place. What's your conclusion? Well, my conclusion is there, there, there are no needles there in that haystack. If I and it later the, turns out. The, uh, I mean, I'm representing on the basis of that search. I didn't find the needle. I didn't lie. I didn't t- did tell the truth. I told the truth. I didn't find it.
6: Again, Your Honor, when in the discovery process, and I, uh, I don't, certainly not arguing with the court in any mm-hmm. way. But I. I no, but I, I
5: want you to point me to something that.
6: Well, the, the 30b6 depositions that we take every day in litigation. Mm-hmm. If I if I take a company representative and he says. We don't have any documents of this description, and I have done the research I'm supposed to do. Then I am entitled to go and conduct my search in other places and other ways, uh, and to rely on that statement. And
0: yeah, but but would you be entitled many years after a judgment in that case to bring an independent action That's setting it aside on the basis of that sort of test? It would depend upon the uh, the
6: gravity of the representation, I think, Your Honor, and also the. Uh, and in this case, I might add that you have individuals against the United States government, and you have
0: Well, what what does that amount—how does that differentiate from other cases?
6: uh, We get to sophistication, Your Honor, of uh, the—not just of the parties. I know that a litigant has responsibility to do what's necessary to present his claim. But when you're dealing with specialized documents that are kept in special places, that uh, even only a handful of experts probably in the country know how to thoroughly research— uh, I do think that makes a well, difference. Well then maybe
0: you have to hire your own expert.
6: Your Honor, and we did, and they came to the archives and did a search as the government did without finding that yes, document.
3: Yes, but, but, uh, what is the source of authority to, to file your independent action in the district court? The,
6: the two sources of authority, Your Honor. One is ancillary jurisdiction to reopen their initial action as was discussed previously. Uh, the um, uh, Pacific Railroad, Railway. You
3: say you can come in and reopen the original quiet title action?
6: Yes, Your Honor.
3: Without any time limit on doing that? The
6: limitation that's applicable to an independent action in equity is Latches. Latches says that as long as the party is diligent in pursuing his rights and there's no prejudice to the other party in later uh, litigating the issue because of the delay,
0: then uh, they will not be stopped by latching. Well, what does that do to Rule 60b, which says time limits, one year, setting aside a judgment for fraud? Do you, do you think that that just falls by the wayside because of your version of an independent action?
6: I think that there is the, the very rule itself, having listed those items in the first part of 60b, that must be brought within a year, and then saying, but this does not uh, prevent someone from bringing an independent action uh,
0: Adopts independent action as it existed so far. But as don't don't you agree that you have to read those provisions together so that e- each one of them makes sense? I think, of course, your honor, they do. And if if, if the second part simply swallows the first part, do you think that lets the first part make sense? I disagree with your
6: premise, your honor, that it swallows the first part. I believe in order to bring independent action, you've got to show the five elements for bringing an independent action. Uh, that are listed in the banker's uh, mortgage case and that uh, there are more stringent requirements for bringing an independent action after the year has run than are required for bringing the uh, the uh, other 60B motion uh, within a year.
5: I think you, you could reconcile them if you reserve the independent action for particularly egregious frauds, of which my reading of the Doris Savage testimony would say, yours is not one you would respond to my statement by telling me that there are cases that show that isn't so. So which case? Well, Your Honor,
6: I can't specify a particular case that provides for that, but I do Mr. think... Mr. Taylor, can,
3: it, can an independent action be brought in a court other than the one that rendered the judgment? I and bl- so, may I conclude would my different? answer here?
6: I believe I have concluded that, Justice Breyer is. Uh, if you're yes.
3: trying to find a difference between the two, 60B is what you use to reopen a judgment in the court that rendered it. The independent action, unless I'm wrong about this, but as I recall, you could bring that any place. Not the, you're not limited to the court that rendered the judgment.
6: That, that is correct, John. So
3: wouldn't that make sense of the difference between the two? 60B, you go to the court that entered the judgment. And if you have 60B, then you can't and run it, and 60B has a time limit for mistake, inadvertent, surprise, excusable, neglect. And, um, but the independent action is reserved for you go to another court, and that court is not going to be any more giving, I, I assume, than 60B would be for the court that rendered the judgment.
6: Your Honor, it's curious to me that uh that you can go either to a separate court or into the court that rendered the action, and I frankly do not understand why you may go into uh, a separate court as well as the original court, presuming the original court is available, and I understand what you're saying, and that is that there is a distinction because you can go into a separate court there rather than filing uh, in filing the motion, you cannot. But I suggest to the court that the uh, provisions for an independent action here preserve those equitable grounds that existed in the 19th century, which was to give the court discretion to uh, have some flexibility in setting aside a judgment when a wrong has been done. The party's been diligent that presented it and that uh, uh, to weigh those equities and to, uh, to make an adjustment. As all of the federal rules of civil procedure preserved as I understand it, the old nineteenth century and prior rights that politically
5: I may not I may have confused you in the way I put my question, but when you were doing research on this, you probably looked up a lot of cases that involved an independent action in equity yes, and involved fraud. That's true. Or misrepresentation. Right. Now did you find a case where an independent action was permitted that involved a fraud or misrepresentation let us say as i want to say as little or trivial i don't mean to be pejorative but, but uh, as small as the one that seems to be at issue here but nonetheless the court said uh, i know it was an inadvertent misrepresentation I, I know it was somebody who was looking for a needle in a haystack i, I know it isn't much of a fraud but still you can bring your independent action. Did you find a case that you would like me to look at that would help you in that way?
6: Yes, Your Honor, West Virginia Oil and Gas versus Brees Lumber Company okay. uh, cited in our brief. It's Fifth Circuit, 1954 decision. It's also <coughs> cited by the Fifth Circuit in its opinion. Mm-hmm. That case is one in which there was mistake mistake uh, in regards to description of land, mm-hmm. and uh, it became apparent that there was a mistake, but oil and gas had been discovered on the land. In the meantime, the party that was a beneficiary uh, didn't want to agree to it and fought it on jurisdictional grounds. As I recall, that action was brought seven years after the original judgment was entered, and it was pure a mistake. Mm-hmm. And uh, the court uh, reversed it and uh, corrected that mistake. Uh,
3: Mr. Taylor, on the question of finding the mistake, you said that your client was kind of lulled into a sense that there was nothing to be done because the United States had made a representation that there was nothing there. And yet, there came a point in time when you were vigorously pursuing Freedom of Information Act, everything that you could. You hired your own researcher. So why did you shift from trusting the government and saying, well, I'll accept their representation, and then you took their money You were paid, what, two hundred thousand some odd dollars? And then there was a a great flurry of activity, much investigation on your part. So, why, what made you suddenly get into this highly investigative mode when earlier you said we relied on the United States?
6: Your Honor, the, uh, the, Intensity of the investigation slowed down some after the judgment was entered, but did increase again or did, did recontinue afterwards. The, uh, critical point, I believe, so far as the, uh, uh inability to bring this action within one year is that the Beggarlies had looked at archives all around, had hired an archivist to look, had looked in the uh, national archives as a matter of fact, uh, had not discovered the grant. Uh, As they got to the very end, after they'd done this basic research and they took the deposition of the government representatives, man who supposedly knows how to find documents in the National Archives and other repositories, he said, there is no grant in the National Archives, and they had already done an initial look. And so they accepted him. They pursued Freedom of Information Act request after the judgment was entered. They pursued other means to try to find this, but they didn't go back to the National Archives for some time. And the reason they did not go back there is they because thought, based on this representation, that it would be fruitless. Uh, finally, as a last-ditch effort, they said, okay, um, let's take one more look. And they hired this genealogist who went in and did intensive research over a period of several weeks and found the document. But they were directed away from the National Archives as they got to the close of the litigation because of the government's representation because they already dep- deposed this the deputy of that office who said there may be grants there, they went in and uh, did their own research and they deposed the ultimate authority, and he said, uh, "You won't find them there." and so they ceased looking there until they looked at uh, all the other places possible, and then they went back, said, "Okay, let's take one last look here and see if we can find it." And they did.
3: Why was that? deed or why, that grant, why was that dispositive? I mean the Fifth Circuit said, not only was it relevant, but it's so dispositive that we're going to give your client summary judgment. The United States didn't have any chance to say, now, wait a minute, that deed doesn't do it or that grant doesn't do
6: it. Well, the, uh, the point is the government had tried to buy the Beggarly property for several years and negotiated with them and made offers to buy it fully recognized their title, with the exception of their ultimate determination that there was not a valid uh, disposal out of the federal government. There wasn't a valid patent or grant. That was the only question. And once they found the Boudreaux grant, and it was apparent that it was a valid and binding grant on the record before the court. Well, why
3: wasn't it apparent? I know that Professor Bonner pro- provided this affidavit, but the government didn't have a chance to question that.
6: The, the government did uh, have an opportunity to question that, Your Honor. They had an opportunity in response to our summary judgment affidavit to challenge it. They elected not to challenge it. They elected to attack it purely on legal grounds, saying no, that district.
0: was in the district court. You're talking about
6: yes, Your Honor. And of course, the same thing in the in the Fifth Circuit. And I might add, the attack that's brought concerning Galvez's authority was brought for the first time in this court. Something we objected to. Uh, the citation of the Powers Heirs case in that regard was brought for the first time in this court. And let me deal with that, if I may, right here. the district court
3: denied you summary judgment, and that's what the Court of Appeals granted you. And that's what I don't understand. If you say, the district court said, now, if it came to the merits, which it didn't because the district judge dismissed it on other grounds, but if it came to the merits, we don't give you summary judgment, faced with that same document. and. The Fifth Circuit says, yes, you do get summary judgment. That I don't
6: understand. I, Your Honor, it's because the issues that were presented uh, to the district court and to the Fifth Circuit were purely legal issues. The, the government defended on the grounds of jurisdiction. It defended on the grounds of race judicata. It uh, attacked the judgment on legal grounds, whether or not it was valid because it had not been uh, confirmed. And uh, for that reason, the record that was before the court did not indicate that the government had any interest or any intention to pursue uh any factual uh attack here.
5: And why why on the factual attack? Suppose this is a question that's bothering me on the merits, which you probably want to get to, but that I, I take it someone in the chain of title here, maybe your client, bought uh bought an interest for about thirty-five dollars. And it turns out to be worth uh, so far two hundred and twenty three thousand dollars to your clients. So they've now gotten that money, I take it, as a result of the decree. Now, the thing I might be missing is suppose I say you win. Suppose you win, and you win, but you don't necessarily get... I mean, I don't know whether this governor had authority to grant the land to Mrs. Boudreaux or not. He might have just been an occupying force. So suppose you go back to the district court, and we now hear that out, and it turns out that the governor was just an occupying governor, just what they say. He's an occupying force. They didn't change the civil law. He can't give any land grants under French law or whatever, and so you lose. Well, wouldn't your clients have to give back the $223,000? Are they all now prepared to put that at risk?
6: I think that's work? that's an issue that uh, could be, would have to be dealt with in the district court as to the nature of that payment and, and why it was paid. Why wouldn't you
5: have to give it back? If, if it turns out If it turns out that the governor in fact, did not have the authority to give Mrs. Boudreaux the land because he was uh, just an occupying military force and didn't have uh, civil authority over land grants. Why don't you have to give back the $223,000 you already got for this because your client has no interest in this land?
6: The, the government paid that money, and this is documented by the letter of Steve Herman, mm-hmm. which is in the uh, joint appendix. Mm-hmm in order to settle the litigation.
5: Well, so if they had to settle the litigation, why didn't you have to settle the litigation?
6: And they made the choice not to... Um, uh, they made the representation that they were doing this for the purpose of resolving the litigation and not... Um, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm avoiding your question. I don't yeah. mean to. I'm going around the world to get there, The point is... Certainly the government would have the right to present their claim in the litigation. For whatever reason, they chose not to do so uh, up to this point. But if we
5: send it back and you win, wouldn't we have to say, you asked to reopen this? Very well, it's reopened.
6: If if we, uh, I think that would be an issue the district court could take up. It's whether or not they had the right to uh, pursue uh, repayment of that money. Yes, sir. If I may, I would like to address Powers Ayers. Uh, that's the uh, case that the government says controls the uh, validity of the uh, Boudreaux grant. And uh, there's a point that uh, is raised in the brief that I think is controlling that says that uh, in 1783, the government, uh, Dr. Bada, all of us agree that in 1783, peace treaty was made between Britain and Spain. That resolved all issues between those... Uh, two warring nations at that time as to this land. That treaty, by principles of international law, and this is not disputed by uh, Council opposite, validated all prior actions that had been uh, uh, done by the Spanish government during the time period of occupation. Because of that, whatever, whoever may be right about the historic facts and when uh, Galvez was given authority, Clearly, under principles of international law, the uh, validation that occurred by virtue of
0: that treaty resolved any issues there. The grant was valid. Well, now, uh, is the proposition that you're now stating, is that consistent with the powers-heirs' decision? The the powers-heirs' decision did
6: not reach that issue of law, Your Honor. It said first that uh, we've got questionable evidence
0: that's been presented to us and
6: that it's not— But uh, I, I, I
0: don't think you've answered the question I asked you, which was, is the proposition that you're now maintaining consistent with the Powers Heirs' decision? Yes, Your Honor, I think it is consistent with Powers Heirs' decision. Uh,
6: this, if I may—the yeah. uh, other point is it's a point that was not presented in the Powers Heirs' case. This legal issue was not presented as to the effect of the treaty. The, the 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 controlling point, as I read Powers heirs, Your Honor, is that the documentation that was presented to the court was incomplete. It was from a secondary and questionable source, and the court questioned whether or not it had uh, authentic, genuine evidence before it.
2: And therefore, your alleged predecessor in title did not have title.
6: Well, but this is Powers heirs, and that's a different document from the document we're dealing with, Your Honor. This, that document was a separate notarial record of a, of a different grant that had been made as to different islands.
4: No, but uh, isn't, the, isn't the crucial point that the, that the issue was the authority of the governor to make the grant, and the grant in Powers and the grant in this case uh, were made on the same day? Isn't that the point on which Powers is controlling?
6: They, they The grants were made on the same day, Your Honor, but I believe a reading of the uh, Powers Heirs case indicates that the court had questionable evidence before it as to whether or not there even was a maybe it did have
4: questionable evidence, now, well, but it's. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to, it, regardless of what its evidence was, its conclusion was that the governor could not make a grant on that day, and that is exactly the fact in you. And 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 the day is the same in your case, so I assume uh, that power has decided the issue uh, upon which your claim rests. Well, the the
6: the court did say that Galvez did not have authority to make that grant on that day. We say that the court uh, on the record very clearly says that we suppose and we presume and use speculative language about what the history was to reach that conclusion. I believe, though, that the court was driven by the fact that it had
0: questionable documentation. But but the the decision turned, or at least it concluded that Galvez didn't have the authority to make that grant, did it not? It, It stated that in the opinion, Your Honor. No question about that. That was stated. Uh, then we, it seems to me that, that you, you, the position you're maintaining isn't consistent with, with the decision Powers there. Arguably not, Your Honor, but I think you can
6: distinguish it in this manner, that if there were other uh I, I don't but think is that- the,
0: Is this something we want to do in a case involving real property title where I think the Solicitor General is right that their stare decisis is regarded as the most, uh, at its greatest, uh, peak? I do not believe that this, uh, the
6: court's affirmance of the Fifth Circuit ruling and therefore finding validity of the, uh, Boudreaux grant, uh, would do violence to titles. And the reason is, Your Honor, that this, this we're talking about a period in the uh, late 18th century, and the government raises a specter that we'll have competing titles out there and that the government may have titles based upon the Louisiana Purchase and the Thorgett game, which are in conflict with the Spanish titles. That's not so, Your Honor, because adverse possession
0: will have long since taken care of any issues. But, but it still undermines the principle to say that this is, will just have a very limited effect because other factors historically soon came into play. Uh, I don't think that really counsels in favor of being more lenient with stare decisis here because the general proposition is that when you're dealing with real property titles, you adhere more most closely to it. I, I
6: understand that rule of law, Your Honor, and I understand the reason behind it, but I, my statement is that as a matter of fact, there will not be any conflict with any titles caused by ruling uh, that the Boudreaux grant was a valid grant uh, because adverse possession... Uh, whether it's a government's title and it put it's got a national forest uh, museum or whatever it may have on the land adverse possession will uh, clear up any problems with that and if it's conflicting uh, theoretically conflicting private titles adverse possession again would clean those up um, clearly the uh, the leaf title itself they paid taxes for 32 years on this land and in fact paid quite a bit more money than that initial tax payment because the tax bills were going up over time Um Nobody nobody was claiming against them. The government recognized their title itself uh, and negotiated with them for several years and made offers to them to buy it. Even in the Riley Beggarly affidavit, the government presented him with uh, title opinions that said that the title was in the beggarlies. Uh So I do not see any disruption of title. And I might a- add, Your Honor, that this court has on more than one occasion uh, reconsidered it's interpretation of laws of, uh, foreign governments as well as, uh, uh, state governments, uh, based on newly discovered evidence or, uh, the fact that the, uh, the law in that sovereign area, uh, country has, uh, changed by ruling of its ultimate authorities. I, I might add that, uh, Chief Justice Marshall writing for the court in the Perchman case in, uh, uh, 1833, I believe it was, reversed his prior ruling. May I continue, Your Honor?
0: Uh, I think Thank not. Your time has right. expired, you, Mr. Honor. Taylor. Um, Mr. Wilson, you have three minutes remaining.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Um, uh, a few points. Uh, first, on the question of mistake on the West Virginia oil and gas a decision that uh, my colleague mentioned. First of all, let me say... We think that case was incorrectly decided. It's, a, it's an old Fifth Circuit case. Well, and also but,
2: requires negligence on right. the part, uh, the absence of negligence on the part of the movie yeah. party. I, do, you, do you think we have the uh, authority in this, uh, in, based on the issues that are before us, to uh, uh, rule in your favor based on the fact that the misrepresentation is not uh, sufficient to set aside the judgment? Um your brief asks that we remand.
1: Right, on the fact. well, on the facts of this, I think that if- assume we're wrong on the first two questions presented and there is jurisdiction in the district court, I think that the case has to go back to the district court, um, for a determination about the facts of- of this case because the-, uh, the once the- the dismissal based on lack of jurisdiction is- it, it would be wiped out, then the case is no longer really in the court of appeals and the case should go back to the district court for, uh, uh, for further proceedings, that was,
4: was there a ruling on, on latches on
1: the? Independent yes, the action? district. Yes, there was, Your Honor. Uh, the district court uh, concluded that the respondents independent it, it recognized that there was a bar of there could be a bar of latches, and it ruled that respondents' independent action was barred by latches. Now, the court of appeals just uh, didn't really address that at all, and 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 nonetheless, um, you know, held for the respondents. Can you go back to Justice yeah. Kennedy's
5: yeah. question? Look, I was thinking maybe if we're trying to reconcile independent action with the first part of the rule. You would do it by saying independent actions are those unusual, egregious frauds, etc. But you say if I thought that, I couldn't say that here. We'd have to send it back.
1: On the facts of this case, yes. As to whether it is egregious? Yeah. Uh, as to whether it is egregious. Uh, because the, it's the district court that is supposed to, it's the district court that's supposed to make an evaluation. And when it looked at the case, it said, uh, you know, I don't find any evidence here of of fraud or mistake that would warrant um, setting aside. But I mean, the is,
5: can we take certain facts? I mean, they have the record here. Suppose we looked at their facts, which was its testimony that was referred to, and say so that doesn't rise to the level, or it does.
1: Um, well, of course, we. I mean, I think if we went back to the district court, we would move for summary judgment probably uh, on the grounds that there were there was no evidence of, of fraud or mistake on, and so on the merits, of the independent action uh, should should. Uh, not go forward. I think that the court, once all that the court of appeals could have done was decide whether there was, whether there was jurisdiction. Uh, a couple of points about the national archives. Uh, um, I, I can't agree with the statement that the, the government directed uh, the respondents away from the national archives. Um, I, I understand um, that my colleague has relied on Dr. Doris Savage's deposition, but I think it is important the whole of that deposition and also Mr. nipfing's deposition. Uh, did say that the Crawford Commission report, you know, is one standard source that we look to, and it is in the National Archives. And we did uh, bring the Boudreaux grant specifically to the uh, to the attention of of, uh, of of the court.
0: Thank you, you Mr. Wolfson. The case is submitted.